Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good Shabbos. Each and every week on Shabbat, we have a chance to to open our hearts to prayer and then to open our hearts and minds to receive wisdom from Torah. In the rabbinic imagination, whenever the Torah is brought out, it's a moment of Sinai re-experienced. To stand for revelation. And there were times in the Roman community when I wanted us, instead of being passive listeners, to stand up for Torah. To understand and stand under what it is to receive something that we might otherwise not have known. Or in some way, shape, or form, we open ourselves to receive good advice from someone who has been there before. And the Torah has been there before. In fact, the Zohar, the holiest book of mystical literature that we have, the Zohar, which we'll be celebrating tomorrow. I'll talk about that in about half an hour. The Zohar calls all of the Torah itin tavin, etzah tovah, good advice. As if when we open the Torah, we're not just studying it as one would study it anthropologically or historically or critically, but we're actually coming to the Torah with a question and saying, can you help us? Give us some light in a dark time. Give us illumination. Help us to understand how we are to be better human beings, better Jews, better citizens of the world through your wisdom or through the wisdom of Torah as it's been filtered through 2,000 years of commentary and super commentary and super, 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 super commentary. In other words, a chain of transmission that has marinated Torah in its kind of like, as if the original verse of Torah was a tea bag, and then each generation was the place in which it marinated the time and the culture and the intention, and then it kept giving flavor the taste of Torah, the reasons of Torah, and this morning is no different. Even though, of course, usually when we get to this third of the five books of Moses, people cringe. Rabbis are no different. Rabbis and those who are called upon to give Torah when we arrive at the book of Leviticus say, really? Wow, this is tough. What do we do with the cult of sacrifice where the technology of the religious period was to offer an animal for various reasons, sacrificing for, sacrificing to, what could be the reasoning behind the technology of Leviticus, of the book of Vayikra. This morning we'll be reading about a particular one of the sacrifices called a Zevach Shlamim, which was an offering of, well, of wholeness, of whole being. There are a lot of arguments about what it exactly means. We'll get to that in a moment. But just to frame Leviticus for us as moderns, um, and see that it's sur- kind of super relevant. The first moment of violence in the Torah is the violence between Cain and Abel. The violence between Cain and Abel comes when, right, when Abel brings and Cain brings and Cain's offering is rejected and Hevel's and Abel's is received. That moment of violence is essentially violence that is rooted in rejection. I brought my gifts and you didn't want them. You said no to my opening. The violence rooted in rejection of being putting ourselves up and on the line for something, but then having it nullified as if it didn't matter. Right? When people say black lives matter, mattering, that we were annihilated, we aren't seen, we aren't even visible. And to raise that reality of saying, this matters, these people are not seen, they matter. And rooted in Cain and Hevel, and Cain and Abel is a story of violence that is certainly as a kind of description of what it is to offer a gift and to have it rejected, to take a risk. We could frame, and I think this is 
from Moshe Habertal, the great scholar who wrote a book on it, and I kind of quoted the last four years. His book on sacrifice, Moshe Habertal on sacrifice, says that the entire sacrificial system is looking at what it is to be in an exchange economy. And what it means to put ourselves on the line and to offer something to someone or something or some being that doesn't need anything we have and what risk is involved. What can you bring the one who has everything? The one who has everything. God has everything and yet the entirety of the temple service revolved around human beings offering something to someone who had everything. And because God had everything, that heightened sense of rejection of, I don't want this, thank you for your gift, but I don't need it, is even more profound. So to come into that technology and say, here I am, I have nothing to offer you, but will you take my gift? What does that do for us phenomenologically, internally, as a human being? What does it say? I don't know if you're going to want this. The contingency of that. The deep humanity of it, the humbling nature of that. Is it possible that we are seeing in the book of Leviticus the Bible's lesson on what it is that most deeply scares human beings? Which is that we don't matter. That nothing we do matters. That it doesn't matter if it was a bullock or it was a poem. Predating, of course, anachronistically existentialist philosophy, Sartre and Camus and all of those, Kierkegaard, what can you offer? What is the meaning of existence? The book of Leviticus begins from a place of there's nothing you can give God that God needs, but yet God needs you. There's nothing you can offer God that can make things right, so to speak, but yet you can make it right. If you are willing to show up in the precinct, in the temple, sir, if you are able to show up and say, here, will you, you want the, can you have it? Is that okay? It's like you push it there, like, okay. And what that does to us as human beings to say, do you still need me? Is there something that I have to offer that might be important to you, that might be sufficient to be noticed? Will you give me your attention? So if you turn to page 592, the third type of sacrifice that was offered in the temple highlights this question in a remarkable way and gives us a Torah to live by, I think. 592. Bottom of the page. 592. Chapter 3 of the book of Leviticus of Vayikra teaches us about an offering known as the Shlamim offering. Can everybody say that word? Shlamim. One more time. Shlamim. Shlamim. This is Zevach Shlamim, an offering of well-being. Translated as well-being in your Torah, in the Bible, the phrase Shlamim is very ambiguous. Offering of well-being. What, let, let's define this term Shlamim, and then we might have some understanding into the technology of this offering. What does Shlamim mean? From the word, what word? Okay, so let's try the word Shalom. Okay. So Zevach Shlamim will be a peace offering. What would that mean? Peace between whom and among whom? What is peace? What peace? What's peace got to do with it? So peace amongst everybody. So, okay. 
So if I'm in a fight with someone, I would bring a shlamim? Shlamim, peace. Everybody, I'll get, come back to peace in a moment. Anybody have another interpretation? Shlamim from another word or in? From the word shalem, which means complete. It's a complete offering. So let me tell you about the shlamim, and then maybe we'll, we'll figure out from there what, it's, what, what, what actually happened in the shlamim. So there were three kinds of offerings in the temple. There was a holy burnt offering called an olah, where the animal was completely consumed on the altar. There's another kind of offering called a mincha, which is a gift offering, a grain offering. It was, a very, it, was for simple, it was a simple offering. If you couldn't afford to bring an animal, it was a simple offering. And here we're coming in for a landing, everybody. So if you're falling asleep, wake up. Shlamim. Shlamim. It's an offering that was shared. Part of the animal was offered on the altar, and part of the animal was shared with the priests, and part of the animal was given to the person who brought the offering, almost like a barbecue. So the animal, parts of the animal were offered onto the altar, part one. Yeah, got that? On the altar. You see it, savory smoke flying up. Second part of the offering goes to the priests. And the third part of the offering went to those, the Baalim, those who brought it. No other offering or type of offering was this type of offering. It was Shlamim. The Shlamim offering was shared by many people. So what does Shalom mean? Let me, let me read to you the great 11th century Rashi's understanding of Shlamim. What does it mean? Shlamim means, Rashi says, it comes from the word Shalom. Why is it Shalom? He quotes the Midrash. I'll find it here, but I know it by heart anyway, but it's somewhere in here. It doesn't matter. Here it is. Rashi quotes the Midrash and says, Shlamim, why is it called the Shlamim? Shemitilim Shalom Ba'olam. As... Liliana said, it brings peace into the world. Okay, doesn't explain that at all. But then he says another one, Davarachir, another interpretation. Why is it called Shlamim? Shalom It creates peace because everybody gets a peace. It creates peace because everybody gets a peace. Which begs the question, which we were studying this morning in the open book, does that mean if everybody doesn't get a peace, what? There's no peace? The shlamim, the whole offering, the offering that is complete, the completion offering is anything but complete. It's completely divided. It's not the holy burnt offering. It doesn't stay in one piece. It is divided and then doled out. So the scholar of, of Torah, Bible, Baruch Levine, in his own interpretation of this in the Anchor Bible, looking at Akkadian, ancient Akkadian roots, says that really the Shlamim offering should be related to the word in Akkadian, Shlamnu. Shlamnu, I don't even know how to pronounce it in Akkadian. My Akkadian is a little bit rusty. And his interpretation is... Remarkable. If you look in your um, Bible on the bottom, it says there's an interpretation brought in his name. It is designated by Baruch Levine as the sacred gift of greeting. It was a gift that was the kind of gift when you greeted someone. This was a greeting offering. The peace in the world. The peace 
in the vertical dimension, the piece in the horizontal dimension is designated as that offering which allows maximal greeting and hospitality. The third kind of sacrifice in the temple was a hospitality sacrifice. A shared meal. Someone says, you know what? Something good happened in my life. It is a nidava. It's something that you voluntarily bring, voluntarily you bring to the temple. You say, you know what? I want to share my goodness. So how do you share your goodness? You get a big old fat animal. And then you say, you know what? There's enough in this animal for me to greet you with it. And to greet you with it. And to greet you with it. To open up and say, how do I create radical hospitality? The shlamim, the offering of wholeness, is an offering of wholeness because it is recognizing that everyone wants to belong. Everyone wants to be a part of the meal that you break out. It's a perfect offering to read on this morning of the Shabbat on which we read about another kind of offering called the Paschal offering where people were invited. The Paschal offering was a shlamim. It was where you invited people. It's a seder. It's a symposia. It is asking the question spiritually, which is, to what extent do I make myself vulnerable by asking others to join me? What comes up when I open myself to include and make my circle larger? What is at risk when I don't? Is peace at risk when I don't say, hey, will you join? You can't bring the shlamim and just eat it for yourself, even if you have a big family. You have to invite others. Now, we give this lip service in religious world, but let me, let me, let me say this. That I think the Torah believes radically that love can be instrumentalized that love can be a means towards an end. Love itself, loving, can be an instrument. That there's a question all of us live with every single day, which is, do you really love me? Do you love me? Do I love you? And what is the answer, right? She answers, oh, I cooked your... Am I an instrument... Am I in an I-it relationship with you? Do you see me as someone who is deserving of love, attention? Attention is the non-instrumentalizing of love. When I give you attention for no other reason than the fact that you are, and you are beautiful, you are you, and I attend to you, that is the antidote to instrumentalizing love, where I love you for something, for this, for that. When people ask me why they should come to synagogue, I say, for no reason. Because... Those who love synagogue or the community that is in synagogue say that there's something happening there that you can't get anywhere else. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not a fee for service. It's not like you can join a synagogue and you'll get extra towels when you go to the Schwitz. <laughs> or member benefits include, you know, a nice meal with your rabbi. That's great. It comes with it. What do I get with it? Come on. That's what we think of us. What, what comes? Oh, you get high holiday tickets. Woo! That's great. The way that we instrumentalize membership in synagogues, communities of holiness, is exactly the opposite of what communities of holiness are all about, which is love. You come to the synagogue, you come to the church, to the mosque, because we see you, and this is a place where that happens. 
Not in order to get something from me and for me to get something from you. I get your money, you get my rabbi. <laughs> it's the epitome of a commodification of, hum- of human beings. It's I it. Everywhere. We might as well just put up an I it sign. Come here and join the synagogue and we will objectify you and you can objectify us and we can be in a holy relationship that way. There's a danger in the sacrificial system. The danger in the sacrificial system is that I will instrumentalize the sacrifices and I will run God the way that I run other things. I will give God this animal and then God will give me what I want. I will give God this really beautiful sheep because it was so hard for me to let go of my sheep. And now the system becomes a way for me to manipulate the divine. And as Moshe Haberdahl quotes, he points out that on that level, God will say, you know, I'm no different than the rich, hus- rich, rich husband syndrome, where God wonders all day long, do they really love me or is it just because I'm so powerful and good looking? So along comes the shlamim, and the shlamim says something radical. Instrumentalizing the sacrificial system is, right, when it's this way, But what would it look like if when you brought what you thought was going to manipulate the divine was actually something to share with your brothers and sisters, to say to them, come join me regardless of who you are and where you are. Come join me in this. It was mine, but I'm self-transcending my self-interest in owning the entirety of this animal, and I am forced to share it with you. Because you are another human being and you want to belong no differently than I do. You want to partake no differently than I do. And this is a powerful teaching from Leviticus. The call of this morning and this aliyah, if you feel comfortable coming forward, is this. To share something. To share it and to take a risk in inviting someone else to partake of what it is to express that hunger. I need you. I need you. Not I need you because of for, but I need you because I need you. I love you because I love you. To remove our cathexis, our centralizing around what we use people for or what we use an institution for and we step back and say, in order to make peace, sharing must come from that place of non-instrumentality, from love. And it's dangerous when we open up that way. I need you because I need. I'm a human being. God needs us because God models that. And we say, will I take a chance in inviting you in, even though you might say no? Because when we open ourselves on that level, it is risky. It is much easier to be the boss and say, I want something from you because... I need you to behave because... I need you to love because... Instead of saying, I need you because I'm... I'm less without you. And when we're together, it's bigger. And I'm human, and that's what I do. So we're going to read these verses, verse 1 through 5, about the Shlamim now. And I want to invite us uh, to take a moment here to think of maybe some place in our life where we wish to share, to extend, to take a risk, to open, to release... Please come forward for the first Aliyah in a moment if that speaks to you this morning for the reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 for the first Aliyah. 